welcome DC Comics News fans to a special episode, and this one is special in a good way. We're not mourning or missing uh, favourite creators this time. I know we're mourning. Uh, we're not mourning at all. We're evening. We're nighttime. We're celebrating the birth of a brand new TV show based on what could arguably called um, the greatest epic in the history of comics. The comic that made uh, comics matter. The comic that put the capital L in literature. And that's not my quote. I stole that. Do you know who I stole it from? My buddy, Brad, the endless Filicky. Brad, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm happy that we live in a world where we got a live action Sandman TV series. How lucky are we? <laughs> Dude, and not just how lucky are we. How lucky are we that it is so damn good yep. in every way. But, hey, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves we need to talk about this show, which has been 30 years in the making. And obviously, yeah, let, let's start at the beginning. And so initial thoughts. And I mean, did it live up to your expectations? You know, I think it exceeded my expectations. Uh, you know, my whole quote, Sandman is literature. And I really do think, and, I, and, I, and I'm not overstating it when I think that the Sandman is one of the greatest achievements in literature, through history i really believe that so it had so much to live up to so i i fully admit as excited as i was that it was coming out and that we were actually going to get it i wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was i i really had reined in my expectations because there is so much in the material it's so dense and trying to even get a fraction of it was a herculean task so yeah you know i i I was blown away. It really did exceed what I was expecting when I went in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's deep. It's rich. It's got so many layers and already like the books. And I will admit, because I'm me, I've started my second and third watches of some of the episodes, especially the ones that really grabbed me. And just like when you read the books and you and I have read these stories, I can't even count. (laughs) I'm already picking up things I missed on first viewing. And that is like one of the greatest achievements of any story that even when you know the material, even when you love the material, you can still revisit it and catch glimpses and nuances that weren't there before. And how spoiled have we been? I mean, not only is it the greatest comic, I mean, the audio adaptations were mind blowing, virtually identical to the comics. So to me, yeah, yeah. For this, I revisited a lot of the material. Mm. leading up to the tv series was was the audible and they've done a great job with oh, that as well yeah maybe we have a podcast about the audible at some point but. well act three's coming out soon so there's our excuse oh yeah there you go yeah. before exactly. the end of the year it's already recorded so we just yeah. need to get a release date so mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely but that's what i wanted to tap on because obviously the few negative comments i've seen is that they strayed too far from the source material I disagree. They may have changed a few things, but the the feel, the atmosphere, the whole um, backbone of the story is completely intact. That hasn't changed. If you want exact, listen to the audios. But that's why I think this show is every bit as brilliant for people who've never heard of Sandman. And this one thing it's doing, it's bringing fans in. But for new fans, we're getting surprises. We don't know everything that's coming. And I'm loving that. What about you? And I, I, yeah, I love it. And I think 
you know, you, like I said, you can't really, there's no way to get everything that's in those books, but the, the choices they made were very fitting for moving the story along in the 10 or now 11 episodes that we were given. And with those constraints, they, <laughs> they put so much in and so much of my favorite material was yeah. in the book. I, I, I always loved the battle between Morpheus and the demon <sighs> of the series. It was Lucifer. And in my mind, I, I'm, I'm saying the things with the characters yeah. and this what we're getting to those points. I was like, Oh, they did it. And I, 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 you know, I, I remember looking at the episode titles and there it was 24 yes. seven. And I thought, Oh, it's there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because that, that whole, that, that, that's one of the best pieces of horror fiction ever. It, yeah. And, and that, and, and this is coming from the biggest Stephen King fan you're ever going to talk to, but that twenty the 24 hours is will yeah. always be one of the best pieces of horror fiction ever. And and we got it. And yeah, it was different, but it was still so powerful, powerful in a different way, the way they use the visuals. You know, I I, I really couldn't have asked for more uh, in an adaption of one of my favorite stories. And I and and I don't say that lightly. I mean, that's that takes a lot. Absolutely. And yes, heads up, people. Um, at the moment, we're just talking about overall feelings for the show, but we are going to go into spoiler territory. If you haven't seen this show, um, what's wrong with you? You've been locked in a bubble underground for the last hundred <laughs> years. What, what's happening? Go see this show then go buy the books, go listen to the audios. Welcome to the dreaming, but we are going to go into spoiler territory. So yeah, you've led me like a dream. See what I did there? <laughs> it's how I wanted to do this. So, completely agree. This is a storytelling of a next level where, and this is why it's worked for me. Neil has been there from day one. That's why this series works. He's one of the showrunners, he's one of the executive producers, he has script approval, and these are his characters. So, while, again, minor negatives I've heard is, oh, where's. Marshall Manhunter, where's Scott Free, this, that, and the other. You can't have that for people who don't read comics. He had to adapt his work in a way that brand new viewers could come in and not have to worry about 80 plus years of DC history. And in my opinion, he succeeded admirably. How, how did you take that? What are the changes well, I, that you like? You know, I, not only is it great that he was involved so deeply and it's so dear to his heart, but I get this sense from the whole production and the, the, the direction and the art design yeah. that he really knew uh, – and I don't, want this, I don't want this to sound negative, but he knew how to stay in his lane. I think that he knew how to work with an incredible team. The team they got was incredible, and he knew it. He knew that he had people that could do what he wanted. And there's just something about his stamp that was so authentic, like he didn't overstep what he was doing. And, uh, you know, it, it's so brilliant. And, and I might reference this interview a few times as we talk about it, but mm -hmm. um, he was he was on the um, Mark Marin WTF. Yes, so good. Was, great. Interview, and that was yeah. a great interview. Really good. And, um, you know, one of the things he said, and it was so true after watching the episodes, is he says, this is not this is like nothing else that's been on TV. Fact. And one of the reasons is because all the episodes feel different. 
they have themes and certain arcs that are still going on, but every episode has its own feel. And that was really smart because I think that uh, if you talk to fans of the books, they're going to have their favorite issues or story arcs. And uh, they were were really good at encapsulating in in a single episode certain fan favorite arcs or issues, especially the – uh, the sound of her wings. Oh. I mean, that was that was another one that that you know I, I I have a friend who was a fan, and he said that when he watched that episode, he actually cried, like it actually brought tears to his eyes, and that just goes to show just what a great team was behind that was behind the show. Yeah, absolutely. So let's do it. Let, let's go from one. So obviously, when we first planned this podcast, um, there were only 10 episodes. But then last night, the most amazing thing happened. An episode 11 dropped, which adapted two episodes in one. Um, so let's start from the beginning. And just like with the comic books, let's start with Sleep of the Just, where Morpheus is captured and imprisoned by Roderick Burgess and um, the sleepy sickness and everything that comes with it. So... What were your thoughts on this premiere episode, this introduction to the Salmon universe as a fan? And how do you think that uh, new fans who may never have read the books would have uh, taken this amazing opener? I, as a fan, absolutely loved it. Like it, it felt instantly familiar and true to the source material. I didn't feel like, um, you know, that, I, that this was going to be something foreign and completely different because sometimes you know these days uh adaptations can be all over the place if you look at things like the watchman series that all you know all rules are off and that's it's, that was a sequel yeah that wasn't yeah, a right, watchman adaptation right. at all yeah right you know um but i, I think that you know it, it, it's interesting but you're never going to know so right from the start it made me feel very comfortable and you know i i uh I was kind of hoping for that line, unless I, I now I may have missed it. So correct me if I'm wrong. Where he said, "Thank God you didn't ca- you didn't capture my sister. You, you mm. caught me instead." Like that, I was looking forward to that line. Um, but yeah, and you know, I I've thought about how how would somebody who's not familiar with the books how would they take this first episode? But I'm so tied into that material that it was really hard for yeah. me. Like I'm wondering, would they be able to follow it? Would they be able to see what was on? Was was the concepts too foreign? Because when you're reading, you can take your time, and if you don't understand something, you can go back. Whereas you're kind of on the train when it comes to a TV show, unless you're going to rewind everything. Which I don't think you're going to want to do that. But so I, you know, I I don't know uh, how somebody would react if they haven't seen, if they hadn't read the books, but. You know, I think that that's that that's not really a worry because, uh, we, as we were talking about before we started to record, that it it, it is bringing new fans yeah. into it, and that's really important. Absolutely. So I think that that for those people who aren't familiar with it, I, I think they were able to just jump on and and you know how amazing to be able to go on that journey the first time. I'm I'm almost envious of those people. <laughs> Oh, for better or worse, um, I joined a few fanman forums and chat rooms uh, across uh, Facebook and uh, Discord and a couple of other places. And like you say, 90% is hugely positive. And what really did surprise me is it wasn't just people like you and I who love this material and have been reading it since it started. 
so many people who say, um, I'd heard of Neil Gaiman. I didn't know about Sandman. And I thought, well, I've never seen these books on the shelves. And then someone told me, no, no, the, the graphic novels, they're comics. And I said, what? This is wow. a comic. Something this deep, this dark, this powerful is, it's fantasy, it's horror, it's sci-fi, it's everything in between. This, this is a comic. Uh, can you still get them? And then I'll come out with, well, yeah, they've never been out of print in over 30 years. You can still yeah. get them. And they've just done four beautiful, beautiful thick omnibuses, which I bought them, Brad. <laughs> I had to. Um, so it, it's, it's wonderful because what I love is seeing that enthusiasm from new fans because while people, what I hate is gatekeeping. And yes, I love this material. Yes, I'll defend it. Yes, I'll try and explain to anyone who doesn't get it why. But I'll never say, oh, God, you know, why are you even watching this? You don't get it. For the people who don't, for the people who come out with a racist or a homophobic or whatever else kind of comment, I let it slide. I just ignore it. I do not engage. I do not participate. That's the kind of fan I will not talk to. But everyone else who's coming in new, I say, brilliant. You want to read it? Here's where to start. Here are the links to Amazon. Buy these books. You won't regret it. No. You want to hear the audios? Here's a link to Audible. Listen to these. You won't regret it. And for the people who did gripe but say, yeah, I still want to give it a go, I said, well, listen, if you want it exactly the same as the comics, listen to the audios. But for me, this series from the first episode was like walking into your own home, but some of the furniture has moved around. So it's still home. Yeah. But it's new. It's different. Oh, I never thought that would fit there, and it's great. Right, exactly. That's the important thing. It's like it's a rearranged furniture. That's a great uh, comparison. But you also, you like how the furniture has been rearranged, and that's important. Yeah. Is that a new painting in the corner? I like it. Yeah. And, And that's the feeling I got from day one, from Sleep of the Just onwards. I mean, what I loved was the way that um alex was a lot more sympathetic to me than roderick in the Mm -hmm. comics and i thought did he deserve the punishment but by writing in jessamy and jessamy's death Mm -hmm. it was a masterstroke it was genius because he got this sympathetic character who did care about dream a lot more than his father did but he still did his father's bidding he still did that thing and I, i i thought little changes like that of what mm-hmm. elevated this TV show to make it on a level with the original comics. It's fantastic. Yep. Yep. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't hold your hand, you know? Yeah, that's and it. That's, well said. Even though, and that's, I, I, maybe that's part of why I come to it saying, I'm not sure how somebody would react if they mm. hadn't read the books because it doesn't, it doesn't hold your hand. Not, with the concept, there's not a lot of exposition. It just jumps into the story and yeah. boom, there you go. Amazing stuff. And let's talk about the cast in that initial episode because it's mainly just Charles Dance and Roderick Burgess and Alex and, and Dream, really. Um, I have to say that I was terrified when I first heard of an adaptation was must've been 20 plus years ago when they touted Daniel day Lewis to play dream. And I thought, perfect stage actor, character actor, method actor. He could do it justice. I know Tom Sturridge, obviously he's, he's quite well known over here, but mainly again as a stage actor. And what I love is his little nuances where he doesn't have to say something 
and it was brilliant in last night's episode in Calliope where his interactions with, with Calliope, you could feel that there was a relationship there. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing saying, oh, does that mean they're going to get together? And that's not the other. I said, keep watching. Expect the unexpected. <laughs> Just don't think. But Tom Sturridge's dream. Um, your thoughts on, on the lead character. And obviously Matthew and, and, and Lucien will come to later on. But the man himself. Well, I'm going to quote Neil when I say, even if Sandman fails, Tom's going to come out being a star. Yeah. This is going to be no matter what. It's going to make him a star. And I think that uh, that that's going to happen. And I think it was smart to cast somebody who is not so well-known. I mean, at least over here. I don't know in mm. England if he's more well-known. But, you know, over here in the States, he's he, he wasn't that well-known. But I think he's, he's going to be a star. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's definitely changed. Because um, he... Particularly, I mean, when you read about him, when you listen to interviews, the amount of weight loss, what he put himself through to get in the shape he was in when he was locked in the bubble, when he was locked in that cage. And what's amazing is they must have shot this in story order because in every episode he's less pale, less gaunt and looks to be getting stronger and stronger. And that's, again, I didn't pick that up on first viewing. But looking at it since, and, and that's brilliant. And while I would have loved for him to have black eyes with stars as pupils, um, there are moments, particularly sitting in darkness in his throne, where that does still happen. So yeah. on the whole, I'm, it's, this is going to just sound like fanboy dreams of this episode because I, I can't fault his casting or, or actually any of the casting in the show. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the strongest things going for the show right from the beginning is the casting and bring up that interview again when uh neil said when we went to cast we we looked and why does this character have to be male why does this character have to be female why does this character have to be this or that and what we realized is if we went in with that attitude that completely opens up to so many more opportunities for actors and they really took advantage of that and they were just so so good at at the soul of the characters that they were playing and and they knew how to cast um and we'll talk about death in in a bit but that's just that's just a perfect example yeah absolutely and and joanna yep oh yeah oh that that was some inspired casting because i don't think anybody expected her to step into that role like she did and uh, that was a lot of buzz going around is how good she was as constantine and uh yeah I, that was and that's another one of those changes that was so brilliant and necessary and they knew how to change it and what to change yeah absolutely absolutely now one of the brilliant things and and you and i have spoken about this so many times when we did our own uh, Sandman episode for superheroes for dummies we talked about the writing about Neil Gaiman and the way he wrote real historical events 
into his stories. And the first time he does it is obviously clearly with this episode Sleep of the Just with Encephalitis Lethargica, with Sleepy Sickness, which was a real thing that happened in 1916 and lasted for decades. It was, an, it was a pandemic. It affected people all over the world. And the way he can get a historical event, well, well, why did this happen? Well, maybe because the man who controls everyone's sleep was locked in a dungeon away from the world and away from his kingdom, away from his responsibilities, and, and that happened worldwide. And they kept that, and they used it, and Unity Kincaid, and it's little touches like that, which I'm just so glad. They changed what they had to change, but the core, like I said, the heart and soul of the show is completely intact. And a word that you brought up, deepness, that was still there. And that probably is the hardest thing to nail down, yeah. I think, in in a TV show where you might miss some of the nuances with the language. And, and like I was saying, with, when, when you're reading, you can take your time and just mm. savor it and take it in. But it's a little more quick hitting when you're talking TV. But they they nailed it. Um, and I, the show is every bit as much as literature as the book was. And that's, that's hard. That's hard to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, literature. Let's go back to the first story. Cain and Abel, An Imperfect Hosts, Episode 2. What can I say? How can they make Cain a more empathetic character, a character you you, you can understand a bit more, but still keep him murderous with great writing and great casting? And again, some stalwarts of British TV and and, and stage with, with the casting again. Your thoughts on Imperfect Host and Gregory and Irving uh, and everything else that goes with it? It was like visiting old friends. Yeah. You know, there is something – I think I had that reaction to a lot of the characters. Like when you see Merv for the first time and, you know uh, – but with Cain and Abel, it was, it was like friends that I haven't seen in a while. And they might look different. But it still felt like them, and it still felt like the story. And uh, Lucian is is another great casting, and 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 I think that she's been a character that people she's a little bit underrated. Like uh, they need Mm. to be talking about her more because I thought she did a great job, a great job, and uh, really held it together. Even talking about it, I feel like I'm back in the dreaming. That's it. That's it. She's fantastic. What a casting find. And again, complain all you like, people. If you don't like it, just read your comics. Listen to the Audible. Because she was stellar. She had this presence and this fact, like, it felt like Alfred to Batman, where, yes, Batman's a big, bad superhero going out fighting crime, but Alfred's the man who's holding all the shit together. Right. Yeah. And that's Lucien. Yeah. That's her to a T. Sandman, Morpheus was gone for a hundred years. Seventy odd years in the comics, a hundred years, because another brilliant thing, they didn't set this in 1989, people. This series is set now. Um, And she gives him what for, and what I love is, I mean, this whole series, correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, this whole story, all 76 issues of of the original Sandman run was Change or Die. And you can already see from the second episode, Morpheus starting to change. 
just with his attitude and his relationship with Lucien, who went from being librarian to almost his right hand, his comrade and uh, one of the most important people in the dreaming. And it's beautiful to watch. And she seems gentle, firm, but and up to the task. And exactly. It's not, it's not an easy task. So. But boy, do I want a library card for that library. Oh, yeah. All our books are there, you know. Yep. <laughs> I think about that a lot. <laughs> Fantastic. And Goldie. Come on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was nice to see Goldie again. It's like, oh. <laughs> Love Goldie. And uh, when you see things on Twitter like, oh, come on, that's just a Baby Yoda ripoff. Oh. Excuse me? Goldie's been around since 1989, people. Move along. Star Wars joke. <laughs> and Goldie wasn't such a huge part of the story either. I mean, so that's that's a silly... But how much did you love Gerving? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Now, we mentioned her. Joanna Constantine. Constantine. Hmm, the power of a name. But um, I love that the fact they've actually reverted to the way Neil says it and the way Alan Moore wrote it. Yes, me too. Constantine, not yeah. teen. But hey, Earth 685, Earth whatever, Earth 2022 is where this story is based. And John is Joanna, and she is awesome. Now, I don't know if we've spoken about this, because to me, um, when Constantine first appeared, when he was introduced in Sandman, in Sandman, in Swamp Thing by Alan Moore, I always read him as a Londoner. And the Liverpool thing came years, if not decades later, when they said that his family was originally from Liverpool. Now, if his family is originally from Liverpool, he doesn't necessarily have to speak with a Liverpool accent. If he's lived in London all his life, he'll speak in a London accent. But Matt Ryan and all the others paid him and put him. But I can deal with it. Still a Brit. But she went back to the London and she's not from London, Jenna Coleman. And the swagger, the attitude, the whole origin story of Newcastle and the demon and Astra. But she killed it, in my opinion. You've discussed it already. Um, what an episode. Yeah, and I think you said it when you're talking about swagger. That is what stood out to me from her performance, is that there there was that swagger that I wasn't necessarily expecting, that certain confidence and it's silly to to have thought that because the constant time character is all about confidence yeah. and swagger. If you didn't have swagger, you'd never be able to keep beating the devil at his own game. So, you know, but yeah, she she nailed it in a way that um, I didn't think, you know, um, I, I guess maybe I was more skeptical about her performance going into the show, wondering how she was going to pull it off or how they were going to present the character but yeah that's 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 another point where it just blew my expectations away it was better than i was expecting a million times better i mean i knew she was going to be great because i I love her work on stage and on tv before that and obviously most people will probably know from doctor who where she's one of the longest running companions in the history of the show she was companion to matt smith's 11 doctor and peter capaldi's 12th which was very rare thing to happen and i loved her as an actor and even from her bit part in captain america um she's superb but the way she took to the london streets she faced down morpheus a power 
beyond her imagining. I mean, from humanity to one of the endless. And she more than held her own. And oh, I, I loved her. I thought she was fantastic. Great seeing her again as her ancestor in mm-hmm. uh, in the Hobgadding episode, which we'll get to. But oh, now I'm really, really looking forward to the whole story of um, the mission where he. Uh, oh yes, I came across her again, and she uh, performed a task for me quite admirably. Oh, I can't wait for viewers to see that episode. Yeah, yep. huge, fantastic. And now, in the immortal words. Of Matthew the Raven. Fuck it. Let's go to hell. <laughs> I hope in hell, episode four. And now Morpheus is on his quest. He's retrieved his sand with Joanna Constantine. And now he needs to retrieve his helmet of office, his crown. What makes him an emissary in other people's domains? We know that in the dreaming, he cannot be defeated. It is his place of power. But in other domains, the domain of Lucifer Morningstar, it's a different story. Again, a totally different take on Lucifer than we've seen from, again, not taking anything away from Matt Ryan as Constantine, not taking anything away from Tom Ellis as, as Lucifer. They were both amazing and I love them forever. But again, walking into your home, but someone's redecorated brilliantly. What did you make of this episode? I, one thing that I loved about this episode was, if you look back in the comics and the art, of these stories it it feels very 90s a lot and they managed to really um completely up the game in visuals and and the look but they kept the same the same spirit um and uh, again thank you for keeping neil involved because i don't think you would have it would have been really easy to mess up and i really I like the tweak of instead of the demon and Morpheus going head to head, it was Lucifer and Morpheus. Uh, that was a good choice because it, I, I think that that really helped um, focus in on Gwendolyn Christie yeah. and uh, giving us a little peek about what might be coming down the pike uh, in future seasons so let's i'll just i'll just leave it at that but i I think that she um left a lot on the table and uh gave a performance that was kind of like you're gonna want to see more of me and yeah i do and yeah so i and we will yeah it's gonna be fun to watch her step into that from what comes what comes next I mean, we are going to spoil the hell out of the 11 episodes that have come out, listeners, readers, viewers, but we aren't going to spoil what comes in season two yeah, yeah. until season two happens. And please, yeah, so that's all I'll say. <laughs> let it happen. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Um, the whole fact of changing the duel instead of being between, uh, Morpheus and Corazon to being Morpheus and Lucifer themselves was the fact that it's one thing to embarrass hell but to embarrass Hell's ruler. And that just adds so much more weight to what you and I know and people who read the comics know, so much more weight to what's going to come next. Because, you, yeah, you can embarrass Hell, but pff, Lucifer is uh, a different entity. But when you embarrass Lucifer themselves, it's just a different ballgame. And I actually thought that was a fantastic piece of storytelling and one of my favourite changes from the TV to the yeah. comics. That was one of my favorite changes too. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. 
it, it just adds so much more power to the battle and when you get two amazing actors and all they're doing is saying words at each other. And that's one of the things I love about Sandman. It's words. It's storytelling. It's not muscles and explosions and lasers and flying and fists and cars flying through the air. It's the power of story, the power of words and the power of hope. And they nailed it. I mean, that, that was a favorite story when I read the books 30 plus years ago and buying this series monthly was torture yeah. Um, yeah. so having 10 episodes to devour in one hit thank you Netflix I mean that can't have done them any famous money wise because I know a lot of people probably signed up for their free month but then haha, you'd have to sign up again for episode 11 yep. <laughs> <laughs> so smarter than I thought I think you bring up something interesting uh, that may be different between how I experienced the show and you did, mm. because you said it was torture waiting months and months for each issue. Mm. What I would do when I was when I was back in college, every month I would go and get a new trade. And I think that at that point, kindly once it just came out, the wake hadn't come out yet. Okay. So I was able to to get chunks bigger chunks of the story <sighs> at once and. I kind of felt like the, the, each individual episode had that same kind of nice chunk of story. Like I, I wasn't yeah. reading an issue. I was reading like a, a trade paperback collection. And um, I don't think that was by accident. I think that was by, that was by design. Um, yeah. So I, I, that's one thing I really liked about it too, is that it kind of felt like in parallel with how I had, had first discovered and read the story. Yeah. I'd agree with that 100%. I mean, looking back at it now, particularly when we do like reviews, um, one of the shows I do for Comics in Motion is the book club. And we've just done book two of Sandman, um, Doll's House. But when rereading it, I did realise that um, uh, Preludes and Nocturnes read far better monthly issue by issue than it did as a book because they never knew it was ever going to be collected. They didn't know it was going to be the success it was. It was like right. a bolt from the blue. Whereas from Doll's House onwards, it reads every bit as well monthly as it does in a collected volume. And every story after that, whether you read it in a monthly issue, whether you read it in a collected edition, was just sublime. And I think that's why, I don't know if you know this, when they initially did collect the books, the first one they did was Doll's House, then Dream Country, then Prelude to Nocturnes. Mm -hmm. And it still worked brilliantly. In fact, better because you already knew what had happened to Morpheus. You just didn't know how he got out of it. But that's, again, like you said, that's what I felt with this TV show was that it works if you watch one episode, but it feels like you're getting almost like a little novel with every episode. Mm -hmm. and yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's magic. Absolutely magic. And I have to talk again about the set design and production values of the show because I haven't seen this show this lavish or well put together since Game of Thrones. This is a show that Netflix clearly care about. I mean, the Undercroft, where Morpheus is captured, the London streets, the where the exorcism happens with Joanna Constantine. Every scene, every location is just superb. You know, I, I, I got to say, before the public reaction came out after the days after it had been released, 
I remember watching episodes, especially the Lucifer episode, thinking, ooh, this makes me nervous because these episodes yeah. were not cheap. I mean, this is obviously a very expensive show to yeah. make. And Netflix can be very quick to, Skip. to cut you off. And yeah. so that made me nervous. But so that, I mean, in a good way, because it looks so good. But I was like, man, this is not cheap. But, you know, I, I think that that we've crossed that bridge now at this point. I think that both fans and new people both really love it. And it's, you know, and it's, I, you know, let's go back to what I said is that it's better than a lot of, than I was expecting it to be. Yeah. So completely, completely. I have to mention being of, uh, partially of Hispanic descent. And I believe you're of partially of Irish descent and mm-hmm. that whole Catholic thing. Did you spot how hell is, uh, well, basically make more, more Lucifer's palace is a, a dark image of the Vatican? Did you spot that? Oh, no, no. Watch it again yes, and yeah, look, Google Vatican. The reviewing, yeah. The yeah. big um, spread of the the architecture of the, the building. And then I thought, that's no. great because so many Catholics are there because they think they deserve to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's how hell works in the DC universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I tell you, I I really hope that they will release uh, an art of the Sandman book, like they do with a lot of the DC movies and Marvel movies and the Star Wars movies. I think that this one deserves it, and that would definitely be <sighs> something that would that would go on my shelf. I mean, I think we need that, I would, or a behind the scenes documentary. Like the more we talk, the more I think I'd really like to see. Better make it. I'm going to make you smile. Um, I know for a fact this series is getting a Blu-ray release. Oh, nice. So fingers crossed, because you and I are the same in this respect. We want special features. We want to see how it was made. We want to see behind the scenes. So if they release a Blu-ray with just the episodes, I'll be happy, but they can't miss out. That would be a wasted opportunity. Yeah. So, yes, this is getting a physical release, which is quite rare for Netflix, but they do do it. This series is definitely getting a Blu-ray release. Nice. Yes. <laughs> so you and I will be there. Ka-ching! Yep. yep. <laughs> Thank you, Warner Brothers. Take my money. <laughs> yeah. And now, we mentioned it earlier, that um, while not quite as horror-based as its predecessor as Animal Swamp Thing, there is a lot of horror in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. And we mentioned that 24 Hours, as it was known in the comics, is arguably one of the greatest pieces of horror ever committed to paper, book, novel, comic, anything. 24-7, the adaptation, while it turned down the physical horror, perhaps turned up the psychological horror and the whole reasoning behind John D and his mother, Ethel Cripps, lying to him his entire life and just wanting the truth. Wow, this episode blew my mind. I know you're a fan of this this story. Yeah, of all the Sandman stories, the one that I reread the most is 24 Hours. Um, and 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 yes, it was different. But but again, it's those changes they make that were kind of necessary to move the the story along and um i i never once 
while I was watching it thought, oh, why didn't they put that in? Or, you know, like the the, the sock puppet mm-hmm. on the TV, things like that. Like, but I but I never felt like, why why isn't that there? No, no, I, it, it fit what was going on. I think it made John D a little even s- sympathetic. Yeah, which was absolutely. something that was definitely not, you know, definitely not happening in the comics. I mean, that was a whole different character and everything that was going on. But um, yeah, it, it, it was how it treated John D was very um, surprising because I did feel a little sympathy for him as the episode went on. And just waiting for that final little confrontation between him and Morpheus, yeah, which was well worth the wait. Oh, and seeing the kindly ones it was that was a really uh, what they did with that was really uh, really genius. So good, so so good. And again, from the book club, I know a lot of people were completely put off by John D. They, they he had no redeeming features whatsoever. He was just evil. He was just nasty. And again, gotta give kudos to uh, David Thewlis for his performance because, like you said. He was scary, but you kind of understood him, which is something you didn't get from D in the comics at all. He was just someone you loved to hate. But in, in the car ride, yeah, with, with like that whole that whole thing really made me feel yeah sympathetic for him yeah. too in a way because we were expecting the audience a different was result. the woman driving the car, you know, <laughs> yeah. and. And that was just, yeah, that, that was so well done. You led me again. You, you're in my brain. Thank you. <laughs> uh, people complained about the comic version because in the comics, he kills her. He shoots her. She doesn't survive. But in the TV show, more than letting her live, he gives her the amulet of protection so nothing can hurt her. Yeah. And I thought that was inspired because... That's a whole new story that can go different ways, which never happened in the comics that can open so many avenues if and when hopefully this, this show continues. And that was really clever. It's almost like I wonder, you know, as Neil sat down to put this show together and granted he didn't write the scripts necessarily, but he was one of the showrunners. If he looked at certain things like that, but this is I could have made this better. You know, let me, this is my chance to get a redo and let me see how I can change things and see how they work. Um, you know, I, above changes for the medium, but changes in the story itself. And I think that that might have been one of those ones to say, oh, maybe I can, you know, maybe this is actually works out a little better. You know, so I would, I'd like to interview Neil and ask him about certain things like that, moments like that in the show. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been looking at, you know me, Sandman. Uh, I've been watching like every snippet and interview soundbite I could get from Neil and from the cast reading up to this. And he actually did say that, yeah, this was a conscientious, a conscious change that he did on purpose because you've got to remember that, and it's stunning to believe that Sandman was only Neil's second piece of work for DC. He was still an unknown writer back then and he was 28 years old. And he said that coming into Sandman now, he's already had the exact adaptation with the audios. He wanted, if this show is set in 2022, he's going to have 2022 sensibilities. This isn't going to be a show written by a 28-year-old man starting out. This is going to be written by a man in his 60s who sees the world differently now, who isn't going out for the shock, for the horror, for the punch, 
he's going out for telling the best story he can. So not only is Morpheus growing and changing with every episode we see him in throughout the whole story of the 76-issue arc of the original run of the comics, so is Neil Gaiman in the 30 years since he first wrote this book. And that's why, as you said brilliantly as well, this feels familiar but still brand new. This is the home you walk in, but it's not quite the same. It's been redecorated, but you like it. And he's conscientiously said that, yes, that was one of the decisions he thought there. Had he written that now, he wouldn't have gone down that route. And a lot of people who read the book with me for the book club who hated that because he was just starting to like him. He turned around and literally kicked you in the guts. He made a conscious effort to change to John D because so did Neil. And that's really powerful. Yep. Uh, you know, he, uh, Neil's talked about how many times they've tried to, to you know, make a, a movie version oh, or a TV version. Almost from the beginning, yeah. And uh, at, right, and that's exactly yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is that he talked about he went into some early meetings and he he told us like, please don't make this, please don't, because he hadn't even finished the story and he knew that if they tried to make it and they messed yeah. it up then that would cancel the book. So, so yeah. there's a lot of wisdom that, that he's built up. I mean, like he was 28 when he wrote it and mm-hmm. look how much wisdom he had then. Imagine what he's working with now. It seems oh, wow. crazy. <laughs> well, we can find out because after 30 years, we're finally going to get the end of miracle man. Hallelujah. Yeah. So, um, yes, that was a long wait, Brad. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. of the longest waits I think in comics history, <laughs> but it looks like it may finally be over. But again, Different comics, different universe, different series. (laughs) Back to Sandman. But yeah, um, 24-7. Wow, that was power. That was storytelling on a different level. Like you say, as someone who's a fan of Stephen King, James Herbert, Clive Barker, um, one of the best pieces of horror, not just in comics now, not just in audio now, but that episode. My wife found it a hard watch because she couldn't remember because she... Sandman's one of the few comics she and I have read together. We read that one as it came out when we were in our early 20s. So she wanted to watch this TV show, and she found that one a hard watch. Um, understandably so. It was meant to be. Yeah. Because what comes after is the perfect antidote. And let's talk about one of my favorite comics of all time, The Sound of the Wings. One of my other favorite comics of all time, uh, Men of Good Fortune, and the way they become one story in the Sandover Wings episode six of the Sandman TV show with the incredible, wonderful, brilliant new death. Um, well, let's go straight in the Sandover Wings. Brad, I, I know you love this story as much as I do. Yeah, I, I did. I just, uh, my heart skipped a beat when he was sitting there on the park bench. Uh, go say the line. What are you doing? Feeding the pigeons. Oh, yeah. you, you know what you get if you do that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh. Uh, but um, and, and, and instantly, as soon as she sits down, her presence, she just nails that character. And I, I think there's been a lot of talk about how good she was in her audition and uh, 1500 auditions apparently right. 
Yeah, and as soon as they saw her, like, that's it. So as far as those bonus features on the DVD, that would be great if they could somehow get her audition because oh, man. she just nailed it. And, you know, I think that she really shut up a lot of those racist idiots who judged her before they I hope so. Show. I think she really shut some of them up and really, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, um, Death is such a fascinating character that I wasn't sure exactly I what I was, yeah, that what I was expecting. Um, it's almost like she's on some kind of pedestal that, like, how could somebody, real. and, and she did it. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I still love the scene where they catch the soccer ball. Uh, I'll be seeing you again soon. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, hey, how did you know my name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she's so gentle, so exactly yeah. what that soul of that character is, and the soul that comes out in the writing in um, the book was the same, the same yeah. intensity, completely as it was uh, on the show, and that's. You can't ask for anything more as as a fan. That I mean, that was. In fact, I think that that was so much weight <laughs> for her because yeah. that that character and that in that moment in that episode is like the linchpin of so much of the series and so much oh, yeah. of what's going to bring people into it or keep the people that were fans of the book onto it. And she totally rose to the occasion and. She never does anything else in her career, which she's going to do great. Oh, things, she's going to wrong, but fantastic but she, actor. She will have that that episode uh, forever, and um, yeah, such an important moment in the story was nailed so well. Uh, let's be honest here, Kirby Howell Baptiste, who plays Death, there was as much weight on her shoulders as on Tom Sturridge. Because this character, okay. the character of death is, <laughs> for want of a better word, worshipped and idolised um, for anyone who's read these stories. So the weight on her shoulders must have been intense. You'd I never know it. She nailed it. I she was, it was perfect. Even, yeah, I Possibly more. Then because you're already going to be coming from uh, sexist people from the beginning. And you're going to add to that the racist people and the way to what she she had to have known that when she took that role, what abuse was going to come her way. Because look at, you know, uh, we don't need to rehash things that have happened to like Rosemary Tran or um, the the Obi-Wan actress. Uh, yeah. Things like that. Yeah. So not only playing such an iconic character, but knowing from the get-go before they even see you that they're going to be throwing hate at you. So that was not an envious job that she had to, to walk into. But damn, did she knock it out of the park? Oh, yeah. Home run. No doubt in my mind. Because of the sensitivity. Because of the empathy. Because she wasn't a killer. She was... A mother welcoming you into her arms. She was, again, I've said to you before, we've had this conversation so many times, you and I, that that comic and this episode changed my perspective of death. Death never killed anybody. 
that bus killed people, that disease, that ailment, that accident, that age. Not her. She brought us here and she takes us by the hand back. And that, oh man, why am I maybe afraid of dying and how I might die? I'm not afraid of death anymore. And that's down to a comic. That's down to a TV show. Because I know for a fact from the comments on the forums that this episode had that effect on people who've never read the books. And that just goes back to the concept of Neil and wisdom. There was so much wisdom that he had when he created that character. And if he does nothing, if he had done nothing else, he would still be the guy that created the best uh, version of of death, you know, because death has been a character many times over. But I think Neil's is really the best. Oh, Close, closely followed by Terry Pratchett, but I just think they're the actually the exact same character with a slightly different look. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> That's the only difference. The way they act is exactly the same. And uh, yeah, Kobe Hal Baptiste, Brad and I salute you. So to your army of new fans, and to the people who said, "Oh, how is she a goth?" Then you clearly don't know anything about goth culture, um, the Black Goth movement, and the power of it and the fact that we've had a black death in um, the dreaming comics and um, almost like Kirby was there and waiting to, to come out of those pages onto our screens. It's, it's sad that we have to spend so much time talking about that, you know, but it's unavoidable, but it's just, it's, it's It's wrong. It's a shame. I mean, we're in 2022. We should be way beyond Maybe. We should have been beyond that with Nichelle Nichols, who we tragically lost a few weeks ago. Yeah. She nailed it in the 60s, and Kirby nailed it again. Um, I will now hear death with her lovely British tones. So thank you, Kirby. And uh, let's talk about the second half of the episode. And again, one of my favorite comics, one of my favorite characters, uh, someone who I once described as the most human human of all the humans. Hobgadling. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's that is a good good description. <laughs> yeah. Um He's us. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I, I kind of wondered if they would bring that if that was gonna be one of the things that got left to the side. When because you you know, like we said, you can't get all of that in what's in the books. But that's just an example that they can't. They can get. They got so much in from the books into into this first season, and that, that to me that was that was a, a great example of that. So good, and the fact that I mean, I thought, oh, hang on. So this is said in twenty twenty two now, not nineteen eighty nine. So Dream is really late for his appointment. Yeah, and it added more weight to the fact that Hob was right all along. They are friends because not only does he turn up late to a new pub because the old one got knocked down again, slightly more realistic than the comics where the pub's been through a few fires and rebuilt in the exact same location. Um, I just felt that that proved Hob right in even more ways that yes, Morpheus, as we said, he's growing, he's changing. He's accepted this mortal as his friend Wow. And I just I just love the I've spent the last what eighty years hating every single second 
Oh, so you want to die now? Of course not. No, don't be <laughs> silly. Like, no, yeah. no, of course not. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, that made me chuckle. And that's another reason why I stopped aging at 35, because I made the same decision as Top <laughs> So watch out, people. I'm going to be making podcasts long into the future. <laughs> and obviously, <sighs> magic brilliant and the return of joanna again a couple of minor changes putting two stories into one but an example of brilliant economic storytelling to my mind yeah that's very important um is what that show got right is the economic storytelling they knew exactly or they learned exactly what they needed to put in and how to do it pacing and everything was very economic but still hit all those points and i I think that might have probably have been when it comes to from the writing the hardest thing to get right so that's another fly on the wall i would love to have been in those writing sessions about that 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 would have been really something to watch that all come together yeah because like you i wondered are they going to keep this story i mean i pray they do because i love it so much but thinking to things like the kindly ones and the wake they kind of had to mm-hmm. for the impact for what comes later which we're not going to talk about but um yeah hob had to be part of the story and tying it into this is the man who won't um need death because she comes to everyone who needs her who wants her when they need her and want her and if you don't then uh, she'll just be there right at the end to uh, switch off the lights, put the chairs exactly, on the tables, yeah. and close the door behind her. <laughs> yeah, still one of my favourite lines from the entire series. <sighs> Amazing, and they kept it. Yeah, awesome. Yep. Now to the meat, to the bones, to um, the second book, which was adapted, which is the Doll's House, and again some incredible economic storytelling. So was it seven or eight chapters originally, the Doll's House, and they've done it in, in two. Oh. Actually, it's it's over four, but the actual main bottom of it, especially with the serial convention, the serial convention. Yeah, um, I was happy to see. I was wondering if they were going to do this, how oh, they were going to work that into it. They did. Yeah. The and, Doll's House and Playing House. Yeah. Talk to and me. I, and I, I, the same way I felt about Cain and Abel with the old friends, I felt like meeting the crew at the house was the same. You know, it, it felt like seeing old friends again. I want to live there. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it when they talked about the guy who just spends all day reading up in his up in the attic and we all knew who that was going to be. And I, and um, I loved his introduction um, it was just so well done. Yeah. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. And, and it's, it was like revisiting the story again. And uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I just, I love seeing that crew again. I was, happy to go back to the dollhouse so i think that was that's one that i tend to overlook but then when i rediscovered again it's oh yeah i really i forgot how much i i i like the a doll's house so yeah and that had that same that same effect with the episode and every character i mean we've talked about it already that every single actor they cast in this show was so spot on but when I heard, before I even saw him on screen, when I heard that they cast Stephen Fry as Gilbert, yeah. I just thought, come 
on. That's just impeccable because he does have a passing resemblance to G.K. Chesterton, mm-hmm. which is the character that Fiddler's Green latched onto for his human persona. And I just thought, this is just pure magic. And even though they did condense it down to like four or five episodes from the seven, it didn't feel choppy. It didn't feel cut. It felt natural and real. Hal was great. Zelda and Chantal were great. Ken and Barbie. Wow. Ken and Barbie were great. Ken and Barbie. (laughs) And, oh, Game of You. I cannot wait to see the rest of the adventures of Barbie and Martin Tenbones and the Porpentine and the Cuckoo. Yeah. And oh, viewers, you're in for such a treat, especially fantasy fans, because you're going to get your asses handed to you. <laughs> 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 I cannot wait. I, I think you know. I think that's what the show does a lot, and the story it, it does hand you your ass, like and. Even for people yeah. who know the material. Yeah. Because we're because thinking, oh, not, this is new. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Because, and it's the deepness and it's the dialogue. I mean, it's just, it's just everything about it. This is, this is not your average. This is a lot deeper than your, ab- like, your average fantasy. Mm-hmm. Well, I've already said that most of the comments I get from people who are brand new to the material is, how can this possibly be a comic? Every episode of this TV show is like something radically different. The only thing that's like following through is Morpheus. And he's not even in, he's in like 20% of some episodes. And it was the same in the comics. And that's, a lot of people complained about that. But I, I thought it was fantastic because even though he wasn't the main focus, he was still the catalyst. He was still the thing that everything revolved around. And they've done yep. the same with the show. I mean, the fact that most of the uh, episodes featuring the serial convention and everything else, even the house, he's barely there. It doesn't matter because every other character there and the fact that it's the dreaming that's under threat still makes Morpheus central. Mm-hmm. What kind of writer can pull that off where you get a monthly comic where the protagonist doesn't even appear in some issues and a TV show that's called The Sandman where the Sandman's barely in it and it works? Yeah, I, I think that, that that is every time I open a new book, every time I put in a new album or watch a film or a TV show, that's the reaction that I crave above all others is – how did they do that? How did that writer do that? Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the one of the reasons why I love Sandman so much because it had so many of those moments. Um, the whole twenty four was one of those moments. The the battle between Morpheus and the demon, or in the shoot, the, the it was so beautifully written. Uh, those are just those moments. Like how how do you do that? And yeah, yeah. This this and the series, it, all those moments were still there. Yeah. Completely. And we have to talk about, again, the stellar casting um, of Nimrod, of the surgeon, the good doctor, and Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian. Yeah. O-M-F-G. Wow. Unbelievable. Perfect. I always thought that, you know, if I was going to be an actor, had I been born... Taller and you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel you, brother. I feel I, you. <laughs> I would. My favorite roles, I think, would be to play 
the villains. Yeah. And he just, because it would just be mm. so much fun because you do things that you would never normally do. And you can, you know, and he just had so much yeah. fun playing the Corinthian. And that goes so far into making uh, a villain, um, those villains that you really like, you know, like your Hans Gruber's and yeah. Jokers and, you know, Clarence Boddicker and Robocop, some of my favorite yeah. villains, all those performances, they were really having fun uh, with the roles. And he just, he just ate up the scenery. I mean, he was just having so much fun. And that's another, right. such an iconic character. And one I was worried about, obviously, how are they going to do this? How are they going to make him charming and yet still terrifying? And I think they went above and beyond because a lot of the comments I'm reading is, Charming, terrifying, gorgeous, sexy. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't see it personally. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> um, he was chewing up the scenery with all three mouths. Absolutely. He right. was on fire. I mean, what charisma, what absolute presence. And the fact that he still managed to make him somehow likable even though he was terrifying. And if you're reading Nightmare Country, which I know Brad is, mm-hmm. the fact that the character's back now and he, like Morpheus, seems to have learned his lesson. Um, amazing. Uh, yeah, fans, viewers, um, the Corinthian will return. And what's interesting, too, is uh, in the comics the whole, you know, his look with the no eyes and the mouse, that is such a powerful image. And it was still just as powerful in the TV series. And that's... But brilliantly that, understated, didn't you think? Yes. They really did it cleverly right. on the TV show. They didn't yep. in your face his eyes. Yeah, and that's exactly, it was understated, but still powerful. It's like one of those things that they knew exactly what to do to uh, adapt this work, and it's incredible. Brilliantly done. Which leads us to the serial convention itself and the worst of human nature and the way Neil's brilliantly adapted the work to show that the longer the Corinthian was on Earth, the more people he inspired, the more killers came out of the woodwork, and how chillingly normal most of them were. And that raised the horror for me. So while the gore was cut down, the murder was cut down, what actually happened in terms of the violence was cut down, I actually found that the normality of these people much more yeah. frightening with the TV version. When you first see them in, you know, having coffee, talking about, oh, this year's event. And, you know, if you did not know what was coming, if you were new to the material, you would think, you know, this is a normal conversation. You know, what's the end? And it just, as somebody that was familiar with the work, that was so creepy. Yeah. And then yeah. when she comes back with the, with the waiters, yeah, not to get too spoiler, I guess, but his eyeballs then mm. then it's like okay now we're off to the races yeah. and um making them seem so normal is extremely frightening because that's not how generally serial killers are portrayed in entertainment no that's all they're always you know from buffalo bill yeah, yeah. they're all not, to hannibal lecter himself yeah yeah 
Absolutely. And I thought that was masterful. I mean, Funland, the fact they didn't make him this great big hulking guy and slightly childlike, he was just an ordinary dude. Yep. I thought it was far more frightening, terrifying, and brilliantly cast and brilliantly acted. And as convention fans... Yeah, <laughs> it's a spin on one of our loves, doesn't it, Brad? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And now let's talk about Unity Kincaid. And again, one of those things from the original comic, which I didn't pick up the first time I read, read it monthly because obviously there was so many people that Neil talked about in the Sleepy Sickness. But when she came back and thought, I was thinking, hang on, I know this name, Unity Kincaid, Unity Kincaid, and it made me read them again. And he's managed to do it brilliantly again because Unity's there and, oh, she's lovely. I'd love you know, her to I, be my great-grandma. Yeah, yeah. I I felt this, you know, um, we, it, I had the same reaction when I was listening to the Audible uh, because I, at that point, I had kind of forgotten a little bit about Unity Kincaid. And then when it came back, like right at the beginning, I was like, oh, yeah. And, yeah, you're right. I would I would want her to be my great-grandmother. Um yeah, yeah, she, yeah, and, and and that was another great stroke of casting uh, because there was a resemblance between mm-hmm. her and, and the young lady who played Rose, yeah. who we have to talk about because again, completely different to how I managed, um, imagined, much more sympathetic, much more vulnerable, but still mm-hmm. badass because the shit that this girl went through and she still kept going and making Jed more than just the guy who went on the adventures with the Sandman, making him like his own 12-year-old Sandman, brought the same nostalgia back for me that I felt with seeing Hector Hall and the fact that they cast Lighter to look like Wonder Woman, where the original Lighter was the daughter of the original Golden Age Wonder Woman. Little things like that, which are brand new for new viewers, but for comics fans, give us that little comics thing without baffling people. Wow! That was one thing that I definitely thought we weren't going to see is those throwbacks to the original, original. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was a Jack Kirby creation, yeah. the original, yeah. original Sandman. That Sandman was the, well, yeah, the, what the I 40s Sandman, the um, gas mask guy, no, but the Sandman that right. everyone knows yeah. was yeah. Kirby, yeah. Um, Hector Hall and uh, Garrett Sanford, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. And just having that back, it was like, oh, and they did it so, so smart. <laughs> we, I mean, it, we, we say that we're in the golden age of television and this it's shows like this are exactly why that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest changes to the show was the introduction of the nightmare Galt. Mm -hmm. Oh man. I thought I'd miss brute and glob, but this new character was like showing the viewer, showing the old fans and readers that, you can have the bad child that stays bad in the Corinthian. You can have the good child that escaped but still managed to be a hero in, in Fiddler's Green. But then you get the bad child, the one who was created to be a nightmare, who wanted to be more than a nightmare. And I love that. The introduction of Gaul and her connection to Jed was, wow, just that's- wow. That's one of those moments, I think, where Neil's like, oh, we can maybe yeah. make this a little, I, I don't want to say better. I mean, I, that's too strong. New, word, just new, just a different way yeah, of telling the same like story. A, a different, yeah, yeah. And uh, that that was a brilliant 
brilliant choice. So clever. I loved it. And then, of course, Unity herself, when we discover that Rose is a vortex, which is vitally important to later episodes, and obviously with Desire's admission that they were behind that in the first place. But it takes me back to the brilliant storytelling where hopefully we'll see at the beginning of season two when we get to Tales in the Sand and the City of Glass and the Heart Shape. Unity and Rose, the Heart Shape, Desire's Threshold, Living in the Heart, and how Desire is the bane of Dream's existence because they are two sides of the same coin. What do you dream of? What do you desire? And that sibling rivalry, which is just something just brilliant that makes, even though these are endless, timeless, godlike beings of immense power, they still go through the same shit with their brothers and sisters that everybody else and, does. And, and how great is the despair casting? That, I mean, not All despair. I mean, uh, both. Desire. Everything. Desire. Desire. Too. desire. We'll talk about despair. But, but that yeah. is desire. <laughs> There's one no question about it. hundred percent. And that was... Uh, someone who literally tweeted Neil and said hey uh you cast desire yeah because hello and wow (laughs) just like amazing absolutely incredible mason alexander park um inspired casting dream casting see what i mean (laughs) um fan bloody tastic yeah and that whole scene which was lifted straight out of the comic books when Unity says, oh, my beautiful yellow-eyed man, that it was still a violation, but not in her eyes because she had this child and then, thankfully, this these great-grandchildren. But still, she was asleep. And Morpheus's rage, rightfully so, down to the getting behind his sibling and pulling the hair and do you think you're strong enough to stand up to destiny, to death, to myself? When they do stick word for word to the comics, it's just magic. But when they change the things and adapt it and bring it to today, I'm running out of superlatives for this TV show. Running out of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I feel like we're we're really just completely praising it, but but it so so deserves it. You know, we could, you know, because uh, we're not we love the story, so but we're not coming at a place where we. we there's a saying, you know, about America: you love it like an adult, or you love it like a kid. Yeah, I love this story like an adult, but I expect certain things from it. I'm not going to love it just because it exists. I, yeah, it, it's so on such a high level that it has to deliver, and the, the show did. I mean, it's it just did. I mean, the biggest complaint I have about this show is that Death didn't throw the big head at Dream. Mm. <laughs> that's my biggest complaint this show it's just she didn't throw the bread at him but she did it metaphorically with her words and 
this may sound like sacrilege to hundreds, thousands of Sandman comics fans around the world, but the second Death turned up in the comic, I knew, I didn't know she was Death straight away, but I knew that was a relation of Sandman because they looked alike. For new readers, seeing Kirby Halbaptiste turn up, sit next to Sandman, who's this? And then when you find out who she is, and that it was her she wanted, and my God, what would have happened if they had captured death? If the world nearly fell apart, if people went insane because they couldn't sleep and couldn't dream properly, what would happen to a world where people stopped dying? And it's little things like that that just, oh man, I love it. Just love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, look how much damage was done just by dreaming, you know, so yeah, you're right. Well, Oh, God, again, spoiler territory. If if people are wondering what would happen if um, there were too many dead people roaming around the Earth, hopefully uh, Season 2 will answer all of those questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, so please, please, Netflix, please, please, viewers, um, let Season 2 happen. And that brings us neatly to yesterday's I mean we could not have timed the timing of this recording any better because we got that amazing 11th surprise double episode adapting Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope again two of my favourites from the third book Dream Country Brad talk to me uh, man I never thought we were going to get nope. Tales of a Thousand Cats and it's mm-hmm. such a cute story and i that was uh one of my favorites with the audible yeah. version was just that the voice was was great and boy did they knock it out of the park with the voice oh, casting james mcavoy uh martin sheen i mean the list just the list david tennant yeah british royalty of actors yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it was so smart to make it i mean I, they didn't really have a choice but you know, to make it animated and um you know, we, we were talking a little bit about this before we started to record, but I hope that that maybe becomes a theme in future seasons yeah. that we get a little animated um, short segment, you know, whether it's a bonus episode or, or in the series itself. Um, I think that should be a, a reoccurring thing. And absolutely so well done. And Calliope gives wow. you so much more insight into Morpheus that I think that was important to have it and the fact that we get it in the first season before we get a, you know people could watch it and have uh, maybe a different perspective on the character before we get into the second season uh, I, I think bringing that in as part of the bonus episode was was uh, a really smart move loved it everything about it and obviously uh, viewers listeners nerd alert time because I'm me um, and because I, I watched the episode, like we, because of what Brad and I do, we managed to get a few spoilers and stills for the extra episode before they aired it. And but none of us, none of us expected it to air when it did. We thought it might be a bonus episode at Christmas to keep the wait between seasons one and two less um, hard. But the fact they dropped yesterday, we managed to see it, so we can talk about it today. Was was fantastic. But as soon as I knew that uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats was animated, I, I went and searched the internet and searched everywhere I could for a bit more information. And the way this episode was made was fantastic because every character was oil painted on canvas, yeah. which is why it looks so fantastic. Yeah. It looked fresh and new. Yeah. yeah. Then rendered and 2D animated, and then 
using motion capture from actual cats for the movements, which is why my cat was sat on her chair watching the episode like, what is going on here? <laughs> it's like, this is like, what, what the, that's who with the, and I thought I wouldn't wake up this morning in my house. I'd wake up in the field being chased by cats because what happened afterwards, if you've gone on the internet, the amount of people showing their cats watching this episode, I thought, that's it. A thousand of them are going to see this and that's it. We're doomed. We are cat chow moving. Yeah. Forward. There's a, there's a, a video game that just came out called stray. Mm where you play as a cat and they kind of did the same thing with the motion capture. And it's the same thing. People saying their cats are freaking out watching them play the, the video games. So it's like, wow. So, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, that, it's that case with this episode too. It's not, not the best week for nerds who own cats. <laughs> Poor cats. As a cat owner of, of my entire life or cat owner, they own us. Let's be real here. Um, <laughs> This episode is heartbreaking, just as the comic was, because you know that there are evil, horrible people, especially cat breeders, who, if their cat has a litter that isn't purebred, will do horrible things like throw those kittens in a bag. And while that's still every bit as powerful in this version, and while (laughs) the thought of every time my cat dreams, she's dreaming about chasing me... um, (laughs) I'll never stop loving cats. Yeah. I'll love them for yeah. as long as I live. And they're just cute little ninjas. And that's how I'll always see them what forever. an incredible mind that, that Neil Gaiman has to come up He's with He's a cat lover as well. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. They're dreaming of chasing. I mean, that's just, that is what makes this story one of the best. <sighs> I, I mean, in general, Sam and not Dream of a Thousand Cats, but yeah. one of the most incredible accomplishments in literature. Because I'm talking throughout history. Yeah. Because it's just one of the most wonderful works of the imagination. I mean, because this show is every genre, every yep. medium, everything. I mean, the fact that even the TV show, which is a live action horror drama, dark fantasy, whatever, now has animation and giant cats in it. And it's still one universe and one story is like, man, Wow. I bow down to you. And let's talk about, again, British royalty with Derek Jacobi and the casting for Calliope. Um, Because I found the comic very hard to read. Um, Calliope's depiction, the beautiful, horrible art by uh, Kelly Jones in that issue. Mm -hmm. And the way they've taken away that aspect of it and, and the rape scenes, the violation scenes away, but you know, it happened just from a little fact that when he comes down and starts writing, he's scratched and he's bleeding without yep. seeing the actual thing itself. While it does help you hate the character a little less, it still doesn't take away from what happened to Calliope. And if you know your Greek mythology and you know about all of that, you have to again tip your hat to Neil Gaiman's research. Yeah. And to join these two episodes together again, which are so random and far apart, but then are they? Because we're talking about Richard Maddock, a writer and his imagination and the never ending flow of ideas. And what is a better depiction of that than the dream of a thousand cats, which is again, one of the most out there, wild, amazing pieces of storytelling ever. So again, it's two episodes I never would have put together 
myself, but dude, wow. Yeah. It, it makes me think too that you know, as the show, I think I think it's safe to say that we're going to get a second season. So please, God. You know, I, I think that, and, and if that second season does well, you know, and and we are able to continue, we will get the complete story, and that's something. And even those wow. side stories, and and that's really hard to do because there's so many different desperate things that he draws from Shakespeare and yep. Christianity and Greek mythology and all that, and they can still put Roman it in history, the yeah, French Roman. Revolution, yeah. Yeah, all the like all the history that that he draws from, and, and that you know, it's just going to be amazing that we're going to, as things go now, if they're still going this way, I think we're going to get everything, all those little side stories that I never thought we'd see, oh, wow. and um, I'm thrilled. I mean, the fact that I learned things about history that I never knew. I mean, I, I pray that we get the Joshua Norton episode. I need that story because so many people do not even know that that shit happened. That was real. There was a man who believed he was the emperor, emperor of yes. the United States. Yeah. And what a fascinating character and what a lovely human being. So yeah, viewers, listeners, there's more to come. If you enjoyed Sandman yeah. season one, like Brad and I did, oh, you were in for a treat. And if you want to watch more, read more, listen more, keep watching, get those viewership numbers up, make Netflix. Rewatch, rewatch, yes. rewatch, rewatch, yeah. rewatch, rewatch. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your pets. You know, yep. it's a whole episode based on cats. Tell everyone you know who's a sentient being who can dream or die or create or destroy or experience desire and despair and delirium. Tell everyone you know to watch Sandman and fingers crossed we'll get a second season. So last thoughts then, brother. Um, Sandman, the TV series, any things that we haven't, brought up anything that you wanted to mention about the casting of the stories i i i i, I do want to mention despair a little bit because i have to slightly, yeah yeah well uh, which i thought wasn't in it much but very powerful and there was and i think there's also um I, you know reading the comic i have a little sympathy for despair um but with this character too it's it's it, something more gentle about her that i think really uh, really worked um I, I think that when you're in your 20s i think you have a different relationship with despair than you do when you're in your 40s and 50s and you reread it and um i uh, yeah I, I found myself I, I really i really liked what they what they did with that character and i that's another thing what i can't wait for these more seasons because i just want more of those characters i feel like that's yeah. the one thing so I, I can't wait to spend more time with these versions of those characters, the versions that we got in this TV show, I want to see. I want to see more of them, and that wouldn't be the case if the casting wasn't so well, so well done. Completely agree. They nailed it. I don't have a single criticism. I mean, I've heard a few people say in the um, the casting of um, Matthew. Oh, again, because you guys know the character actor a lot oh, better yeah. than I. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, we didn't even talk about Patton Oswalt. Yeah, you know, like, uh, since Patton Oswalt, because in the UK he not that well known. So I didn't just hear Patton Oswalt. I heard Matthew the Raven. And again, awesome, amazing. But we have to talk about your hero and mine, one of the greatest voice actors who ever set foot on the earth. And also um, he played that, was it Luke Skywalker, 
something <laughs> or other in those little yeah. Star Wars films that no one's ever heard of. But um, the greatest Joker of all time. I mean, Mark Hamill as Merv Pumpkinhead. Come on. That is just like inspired. And if you didn't know, would you even know? Oh, you know, I, I thought <laughs> I, as soon as I heard him talk, I said to myself, oh, I would never have known. Yeah. That was Mark Hamill. Back in the day when he started doing the Joker and it came out that he was doing the Joker and you would hear his voice, I would never have imagined that that was Luke Skywalker. So he's. he's I went the other way. I thought Mark Hamill is the Joker? Really? Come on. And then I heard him and I went, okay, Mark Hamill is the Joker. Why? Exactly. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, And that's about it. I've got nothing else to say except please God season two. Mm hmm. Hopefully, by the next time we talk, we'll have uh, an official green light. But even before that happens, if they say yes, then you and I can be sitting there like they're saying, oh, okay, Destiny. Who's playing Destiny? Yeah, Delirium. Who's playing? Oh, I didn't think of that. Wow, that's perfect. <laughs> you know, and uh, the prodigal. Mm, a sibling. It, Who could that be? Yeah, and I would love to see... From a music fan, um, I always really loved the relationship between Neil and Tori Amos and how Tori Amos influenced Delirium. So I I, I can't wait to see who they cast to see if it's got that little bit of that Tori feel in there. Can't wait. I'm I'm excited. And that whole looking for their lost brother, that was another one of my brief lives. Just yeah, I just, just that's another one of my favorite lines. Uh, she's making little frogs. <laughs> I, I, I'm not getting spoilery. I just hope that I just hope that we get that. <laughs> I hope that we get that moment. Little chocolate people filled with raspberry cream. <laughs> uh, telephone flavored ice cream is not her favorite. No. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot wait. So many stories. Well, Neil said it. You, you listen to the interviews like I have. Like. It's 4,000-odd pages. We've only seen the first few hundred. So um, let's just hope that we get to see all of it. Yeah. That's what I want. Until then, um, what you can see more of and hear more of and read more from is the work of Brad the Endless Felicki. And, Brad, where can our listeners, viewers, readers read your work, hear your voice, and see your face? Well, you can uh read my news and reviews at dccomicsnews.com and on DC Comics News Podcast and hopefully uh, now that the uh, third season of Harley Quinn is up and running, we'll get back to uh, the Mad Love Podcast so you can hear me on that as well. And what about you, Steve? Where can people find you? Many of the same places, DC Comics News Podcast and uh, obviously we need to finish season two of Harley Quinn and Start season three now. It's out there. And to read my work again across DC Comics News and our sister site, the Batman related Dark Knight News and my own site, Fantastic Universes, just Google Steve J. Ray or Google Fantastic Universes. And uh, you can catch this show, DC Comics News on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. You can see DC Comics News and Dark Knight News all across Facebook, Tumblr, YouTube, Twitter, wherever else you find your great nerdy 
goodness and that's where we will be and you can chat to us as well on twitter um please talk to me i love talking all things and right now i'm going through my sandman rebirth if you want to have any questions about sandman death dream the endless uh tweet me at l stevo el underscore s-t-e-e-v-o but until you do watch this show watch sandman you will watch it and of course something else you need to do is read more comics they're good for you. Take care.